the Slaughter and May podcast. Hello, and welcome to this Slaughter and May podcast. I'm Graham Rance, and I'm joined by two of our real estate partners, Jane Edward and John Nevin. We're going to talk about what we're already seeing in the office letting market and consider both the human and legal post-lockdown trends. Jane, starting from the human perspective, what do owners want from their premises and how has this changed? Thanks, Graham. I think in the short term, owners want you know, a safe and secure office to return to. I think there is a desire to return to the office, but to make sure that office is the right size, the right shape and crucially the right cost. Yeah, I think that's right, Jane. And adding to that, I think building owners are now being far more innovative in terms of what they're looking to provide to their potential tenants. So we're seeing um, facilities such as gyms, we're seeing doctor's rooms, dentist rooms, sleep pods, prayer rooms, cycling facilities are absolutely key at the moment. Um, There's a big focus on terraces where the building design allows for that. Uh, Certainly professional services firms are looking for auditoriums where the building can accommodate it. And in addition, building owners in terms of their mix of tenants are looking at bringing on board shared space. So a co-working floor. So if you've got a a tower, for example, of 30 floors, they're looking to ensure that one of those floors is occupied by a a co-working provider. I've also heard it, it said from various clients that, you know, they're under severe pressure to reduce costs in terms of looking at their space going forward. And clearly, you know, COVID-19 has caused, you know, huge economic pressure globally. And so I think, you know, directors, are, you know, facilities directors, operations directors at various big employers um, are, are under a lot of pressure to reduce their occupational costs, reduce all costs, but particularly their occupational costs and they're really looking to see how they might achieve that going forward. Thank you. So Jane, how is the pandemic affecting clients who are planning or beginning to plan for their HQ office premises requirements? I think they're really thinking about how much space they need and how they want to occupy it. Clearly, you know, most, most big businesses have managed to work from home pretty successfully and the technology has generally worked. And so, and so clients and, and, and occupiers are asking, what do we actually need? What space do we want to pay for at top, at top whack in, the, in city centres? How, mu- how much can we afford to pay for? And, and they're asking questions about how they want to occupy that space. Do they want cellular offices um, or do they want to share that space? and what is going to be a safe and secure and affordable environment going forward. You mentioned technology. You're right, we have seen incredible advances in technology in a very short period of time. So do we think that the way we work and how we use offices has changed forever? I think we will always remember this time, and I think it will definitely have a short and medium-term impact, and I I think probably also a long-term impact. It's kind of turbo-boosted, if you like, um, our flexible, agile inclinations and, and made everybody work, work flexibly rather than just those who chose to previously. And I think that's a, that's a good thing, um, so long as um, you know, colleagues can still get together and still have the, the social aspect of working, which we've all missed, I think, um, and, that, and, and that's evident. Thank you. And just linked into the the co-working model which we've heard so much about in in recent years and and its exponential rise 
Do you think this has, has spelt the end of the co-working model or, or, or rethink in terms of how it operates? I think that's a really interesting question and it's one I've discussed with you know, other advisors in our industry, for example, architects and, and environmental consultants. And views differ. Um, I think um, there's a sort of myth that co-working means you're sharing a whole load of equipment and that people won't want to you know, touch hard surfaces and share equipment going forward. But actually, the reality of, of, of co-working often is, you know, locker space and you have your own equipment and you just, you know, you just plug yourself into shared space. So we'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens. I think co-working, if it can bring cost efficiencies, will therefore remain in demand. Um, but I think there will be some return to a, a short-term demand for cellular space um, because people will feel safer in their own sort of cubby holes in offices um, and having their own phone, their own things around them, their own environment. Um, and they'll just feel a bit safer, you know, um, from, a, from a pandemic infection perspective. Thank you, John. Turning a little bit more to the legal side of things, Jane's already mentioned cellular offices and the need to balance between the cost efficiencies of, of high-density open plan occupation and the health and safety of well-being of employees. Do you think we are going to go back to the cellular office model? I, I, I agree with Jane Graham in the sense that the, I, I think we, we will see both uh, models exist in the future. I think the, the first point I would make on the cellular office versus the open plan model is that the cost savings involved in moving to the open plan uh, design are not actually that great when you balance it in the great scheme of a HQ move and the ongoing costs of, of a building. Yes, you can uh, potentially fit more people in, but the cost savings are not, are not that significant. Um, and I think it splits between the types of occupier. I think if you look at corporates, uh, they will almost certainly stick with the more open plan environments. They will look to make use of the working from home model and flexible desks, flexible working. I think for professional services firms, we, we are hearing a lot of anecdotal evidence that, 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 that it's not working as well. Um, we're hearing that breakout rooms are you know, being, being utilised by some of the more senior people within, within those organisations. We're certainly hearing within law firms, for example, something that we probably know a bit more about, that the trainee experience is not as good within the open plan environments. Um, and I think, as Jane has rightly pointed out, that the whole issue will turn a, upon whether the pandemic, um, the pandemic is something that will return uh, again and again. And if it does, I think I think Jane is right that that buildings are going to need to future proof against that, and a return to a cellular model uh, will allow for that. Even before the pandemic, we were seeing greater collaboration between landlords and tenants. Do you? predict an even more flexible model going forward? And if so, what do you think the main changes will be? Well, I, I would say, Graham, that, you know, starting off uh, at, at the start of my career, looking at the whole landlord and tenant relationship, it, it used to be very much one of master and servant, um, very much the landlord being the dominant party dictating terms to tenants, where tenants felt themselves lucky to be allowed into, into the landlord's building. Uh, that that has changed. That has changed over the past five, ten years. That is is not the relationship that we recognise today. 
the relationship is now much more one of partnership, much more one of the landlord providing as much as service, as much as a building for its tenants. So how, how does that translate into terms? I mean, we're seeing at the uh, agreement for lease stage, we're seeing that tenants have options in expanding into a building and contracting. So tenants are being allowed right up to, very close indeed to PC, they're being allowed to make a decision about whether they want to hand back floors or indeed take more floors. Um, we're also seeing that where you have a large occupation by, by a corporate or a professional services firm, whereas historically uh, that tenant would take a core lease, so it could be a core lease of 10 or 15 floors, uh, tenants are no longer doing that. They're, they're doing what is now termed a multi-tiered leasing structure. So what that means is they might have a core lease of five or six floors, but the remaining four floors are normally taken on individual leases. And what that enables the tenant to have is much more flexibility. It enables them to exit any floor by way of assignment. It enables them to have break rights to hand back floors uh, every five years, normally, uh, by way of a cycle. Um, tenants now have far greater underletting rights with much less interference by their landlords. And there is also much greater latitude uh, given by landlords on sharing. So historically, tenants weren't allowed to allow third parties into their space. Now, as long as tenants effectively regulate how that works, um, tenants are allowed, as long as those entities have a sort of bona fide commercial relationship with a the tenant, they're allowed to uh, allow these third parties into their buildings to occupy. And I think I would also add that we saw, you know, before the pandemic, over the last 10 years or so, leases getting distinctly shorter. Um, so that the, the days of the 25-year lease are absolutely gone. And I think leases are getting much shorter. And I think the pandemic will accelerate that. So tenants just aren't willing to commit for that length of time. It's impossible to predict the size and shape and success or otherwise of your business for that long. And so tenants are looking for... 10 or, or max 15 year, year leases with breaks, as John has described. Yeah, I think that's right, Jane. And I think the other thing that landlords are, are now willing to do, Graham, is they're, they're, they're often, particularly in a tower environment, they're willing to give tenants a right of first offer. So if a floor becomes available during the term of a major tenant's lease, uh, they're willing to effectively give that preferred tenant, the major tenant, a right of first offer on, on acquiring a further floor in the building. And I think finally, um, and sometimes this is forgotten when people are taking a new lease, they, they often forget about what happens at the end of the lease. And we're seeing movement there from landlords. So reinstatement obligations where a tenant would normally have to hand back the premises in the condition it was given to them at the start, those obligations are now uh, more often than not replaced by a fixed sum that is paid on the expiry of the term. So the landlord and tenant agree at the outset of the lease a sum of money that is paid at the expiry and it obviates the need to get into any discussions or, or arguments about uh, a dilapidation settlement. Thank you both. Um, bringing us bang up to date, are we starting to see COVID drafting, COVID-specific drafting in lease documentation? 
Yes, Graham, we are. We're, we're certainly seeing it in, in building contracts and uh, that, that govern uh, tenants' works. And we're seeing it in the agreements for lease, where the landlord is obliged to deliver the building by a certain time for a tenant. So we're certainly seeing pandemic extensions uh, wording being agreed in those documents. Um, I think we're starting to see a discussion around the whole pandemic issue in leases. I don't think, I think it's too early to say uh, that there is any market norm yet, far too early for that. But we're certainly seeing it being discussed by lawyers. We're seeing it being discussed by the agents. And, you know, from a personal perspective, I see this very much as an uninsured risk. You know, historically, landlords regarded uninsured risks as a tenant problem. And over the passage of the past past five, 10, 15 years, it is now uh, very much a convention in the market that uninsured risks are a landlord issue. And I, I think the pandemic may very much go the same way. Um, save that, I expect that the landlord and tenant may well agree to share the pain of a pandemic going forward. So you could, for example, agree something like, you know, capped at six months, that landlords are willing to grant uh, a rent-free period, you know, for up to six months if a pandemic arises during the currency of a tenant's lease. But but I think we're very much on a journey here. I think um, it, it will occur first in, in a retail setting, retail and restaurant setting, where um, obviously the tenants have absolutely no revenue coming in, uh, save for online sales, um, if, a clo- if a store is forced to be closed. Um, and I think it's going to happen first there before offices where clearly, you know, um, office workers can work from home and can progress matters from home much more easily. Um, so, but, but I do think once, once retail and leisure introduce the concept, it won't be long before offices follow behind. You mentioned insurance and uninsured risks and thinking by analogy with the risk of, say, latent defects on a new build, do you think there's a possibility that we'll end up with an insurance product to deal with the risk of, of a similar pandemic? I, I don't think so, Graham. Uh, the, the early signs from the insurers are that they are very much running a mile from any kind of pandemic cover. Um, so there's no appetite uh, certainly in these early days from the insurers to look to provide any such cover. And I think it would it would be very difficult for them to do so because statistically, um, if a pandemic were to occur, it, it would affect the entire market. It's not, it's not like an, a, a usual insured risk like fire or the risk of flooding that occurs to a minority of the, the insured customers. If a pandemic occurs, it, it affects every business. Um, in the country. And therefore, I, I think it would be very difficult to see the insurance industry respond. The The only um, caveat I would make to that is obviously we saw the Paul Rees scheme step in in the sort of 80s and 90s uh, when terrorism uh, was unavailable uh, by the commercial insurers and the government effectively provided a backup scheme. So I wouldn't rule out the government effectively providing a scheme analogous to the Paul Rees scheme, where they are the insurer of last resort. But we've seen, obviously, this time in this pandemic, the, the government pre- preferring to legislate, to to tinker around the edges, really, in terms of enforcement and, and other breaks. Uh, so to, to step in and, pre- and provide, you know, a, a very expensive, comprehensive government-backed policy 
seems unlikely. It would be a much bigger step, certainly, than the government has chosen to take, and has chosen to take so far. Thank you. And to finish, and, and apologies for putting you both on the spot, but if you had to pick one, what is the main trend you see going forward? I mean, I, I think what we're seeing increasingly uh, viewed by tenants as, as of critical importance, both in how a building is designed, how it's delivered and how it's occupied, is the whole sustainability agenda. And I think that that is a real trend that is, that is gathering pace and we're now seeing far more extensive uh, drafting, both within agreements for lease and within leases, uh, as to how that's dealt with. And, and tenants, you know, corporate occupiers who, who have responsible business obligations, they're looking to ensure that, that not only in how they conduct their own business, but the buildings they occupy are, are sustainable. And, and for me, I think flexibility, flexibility and more flexibility for tenants. Um, in terms of being pretty demanding from their landlords and in what is built for them and provided for them and the flexibility they have over the term. And I, and I also think though there will be an increasing trend for big corporate occupiers to look at other options for their people. That's not necessarily working from home. That could be, for example, uh, investing in one, an online platform, allowing their employees to work from, from other locations uh, near to their homes but where the coffee and the IT and the socialising in the community is provided in a convenient uh, way to them and I foresee that that will become an employee benefit going, going, going forward in the same way as say gym membership um, and, I, and I do think that's an important development for the industry in terms of uh, employers being able to offer that choice to their people. Thank you, thank you both and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions, then please get in touch with us or your usual Slaughter and May contact. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.